This radio program is PG-13. Parents strongly caution some material may be inappropriate for children under the age of 13. Send me Jesus' mission was to comfort those who mourn, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to captives, and open prison doors for those who are bound. For those who want more than status quo Christianity has to offer, Blazing Grace Radio begins now. And here is your host, Mike Janung. Hey, Mike Janung here, and welcome back to Blazing Grace Radio. Glad to have you along. And uh, I do want to... Start off by welcoming our new listeners on Hope FM on 90.1 in Bournemouth Pool and Christ Church in the United Kingdom. Show's airing on Sunday and Monday nights at 9 p.m. And um, I just want to say a special thank you to our listeners who have been following us. And I read every single email that comes in and love hearing your feedback. And today we have a special guest calling in from North Wales in the United Kingdom. Emery's Goodridge is with Misfits Ministries, uh, which ministers to the lost, the least, and the lonely, and the lepers of this world. And Emery's, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be with you, Mike. Uh, Thank you for having me. So let's just jump right in. I'm just going to invite you to share your story and get going. Yeah, sure. Thank you. It's... um it, it's a subject I um, I don't really like to talk about for obvious reasons. Um, it's a difficult subject, and I'm sure many of the people that come across say the same thing. You know, it's hard to talk about, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but basically, I had 30-odd years of dysfunctional, obsessive-compulsive behavior, which, which came to a head some 12 years ago, and I still pay the price for that today. Um, I was very much living two very different lives. On one hand, I was intelligent, clever, studious, earned a university degree and a well-paid job in a respected career, married with two children, mortgage paid off, and a modest four-bedroom detached house, Um, brand new, top-of-the-range car, great prospects. Everything looked great on the outside. But on the other hand, on the inside, it was completely different. I was obsessed with sex and pornography. I was so shy and self-reserved, I didn't know how to relate to people very well, um, especially those of the opposite sex. And having grown up being adopted, feeling unloved and unwanted, rejected and abandoned, I had no self-confidence. So I, I kind of dived into pornography because it was easier, I guess, you know, to, to um, you know, for my sexuality to get have some sort of outlet. And funny enough, my, my first experience of pornography was on a Sunday school trip, <laughs> mm. which which sounds a bit crazy, but, you know, there was a, a, a few lads on the, on the trip and we were left to our own devices and um, we... we, we we're talking together, and we plucked up the courage to uh, to buy a pornographic magazine. 
um, from a news agent, and um, it was it was me who made the purchase. <laughs> and really, from from that moment on, I was hooked. My obsession grew, um, my porn collection grew, and when it became available online, it it all exploded. You know, my use of porn grew exponentially. And although I had a wife at home, my lust for sexual satisfaction led me to a totally dysfunctional expression of that with encounters with prostitutes and bouts of exposing myself publicly on several occasions. Now, 12, 12 years ago, as I said, it, it all came to a head. Um, I was in prison for my dysfunctional and abusive behavior and not for the first time. But this time, I'd, I'd lost everything. My wife had finally given up on me. I'd, I'd lost my family, my home, um, my friends, my career. Everything that I owned was, was totally gone, really. And I left prison. Um, it was only um, nine months that I, I spent um, in prison on that occasion um, with only a few items of clothing and a few pounds in my pocket to make a new start. And I was determined to change my life around and prove to people that I wasn't the person everybody thought I was. But lo and behold, a few weeks later, I was back in prison. And it wasn't for anything that I had done. It was what they thought I was planning to do. I don't know if you know much about the prison system in the UK, but when you were sentenced, you usually serve half of your sentence in prison. And then you're released to serve the rest of your sentence under supervision in the community. Mm. But those supervising, for some reason, thought I was planning to reoffend, and, and they just sent me back to prison, um, you know, to finish off the, um, the the rest of my time, the, the the other nine months. And that really was my saving grace. I I was broken. Um, I I didn't have anything left in me. You know, I was totally broken. And, you know, in, in the deepest, darkest depths of your despair, there's only you and God. And the only thing I had at that time in prison, um, in my prison cell, was a Bible. Now, I, I, I believe there was a God, but a distant God who didn't do anything on earth today, let alone help people like me. But I had nothing to lose. So I, I said my, to myself, and, and really it was a silent prayer that, that said, if God can help me, if he can help me, if there are any answers to my problems, it has to be in here, in, in the Bible. And I, and I sat down and I, I, I read the Bible. Um, I read it from, from cover to cover. Not, not in one sitting, of course. It took a while. Um, and not in order, but, you know, just jumping about from, you know, from here, there, um, from the Old to the New Testament, different different um, books and so on. And as I read it, it somehow changed something. It, it changed something in, in me. It changed me. It took months. You know, I had months to, to serve. But when I finally came out of prison, I was a, a, a changed man. And, you know, my priorities had changed completely, you know, and um, the first thing I knew I had to do was, wasn't to find somewhere to live, 
It wasn't to um, get myself back on my feet, to find a job. It was the first thing I knew I had to do was to find a church. And, you know, since then, it's, it, it, it's still been a journey. That was, you know, around about 12 years ago now. Um, and people, you know, challenged me saying, well, you know, we don't think people can change. And I thought about it, and I, I, I thought, well, yes, I think you're probably right. People don't change, but God can change people. Mm. And I know that I'm changed. You know, um, it, it's hard for other people to understand it at times. And, you know, don't get me wrong, it, it's still a choice, sometimes daily, sometimes several times a day. But one of the um, resources that I've personally found to be helpful is the life recovery bible it's based on the 12-step recovery program that's common to you know alcoholic anonymous and other recovery programs and i guess my advice to anybody who's battling to be free from pornography or any other compulsive behavior for that matter is to find someone to come alongside you to help and you know that's why your ministries you know blazing grace you know and others like it are invaluable to help you beat your addiction. And it is an addiction. And um, what one of the clues to discovering whether your behaviour or your actions are compulsive, whether it, it's an addiction or not, is whether it satisfies you and fills you, or does it leave you wanting more? With an addiction, whilst it may give you a temporary release, the reprieve, some comfort or an escape from your true reality, it soon leaves you wanting more. And not only more, but more often, bigger, better, mm. more release, more comfort. And it escalates and increases as you continue to seek that satisfaction that fills you and, and completes you. And the truth is, it never will. It'll leave you more empty, more in need, and also more ashamed and more guilty and more dysfunctional and more broken and it's a vicious cycle, and the danger is that this escalates and creates that cycle of dysfunction that leads you further and further down into the abyss. It'll destroy, it'll steal your joy, it'll kill any sense of normality in your sexual life, and it'll destroy your relationships. And for some, it's a cycle that will spiral so far as to lead you to such depravity that you will even lose your freedom. You know, Jesus said, even if you look at another with lust in your eyes, you have broken the law. That, that's the biblical law in the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. And, and biblical laws are spiritual laws, laws that affect our lives either positively or negatively. And, and whether you believe, whether you have a faith or not, these spiritual laws will affect your life and do affect your life. So I would urge anyone, please, if if you if you use pornography, you're setting yourself up for failure. Failure in your marriage, failure in your in your relationships, and failure in your life. It it will affect you. And you know, make a decision today to stop, to seek help, and to change your life for the better. We all hope for a tomorrow that's better than today, don't we? And this way, by dealing with this issue in your life today, you will be a better tomorrow. So that's that's 
kind of um, my, my story up until I, I left prison, really. And um, the, the rest of the journey has been, um, you know, difficult. It's been a bit of a, a roller coaster ride. Um, but it's one that, that that's free from what helped, held me captive in the past. And, and that's amazing. Mm. And it's all thanks to God. <laughs> well, amen. And um, your story really shows where this thing can take people if they let if they let it. And I don't think anybody ever wakes up and says, you know what, I'm going to do pornography or whatever, and, gee, I'm going to end up going to prison today. Mm. Yeah, that's right, that's right. But you, you get drawn in, and, um, you know, when, when pornography first came on the Internet, it was, you know, it, it was... Uh, it's hard to explain. You know, you, you didn't know what you were going to see next. And before you know it, you're looking at stuff that you would never have, have thought of looking at, you know. Mm. You said your your initial exposure was during that Sunday school trip. How old were you at that time? <laughs> yeah, I was, I, was, I was in my teens. I can't remember exactly. Um, but I guess I must have been about 12, 13, maybe. Mm. Um, and... You know, um, adolescent uh, boy. Um, you know, with all these hormones, you know, you know, rising up in me, and and I didn't know how to handle it, didn't know how to deal with it, and um, you know, other um, boys the same age as me, you know, never seen pornography before in in, in our lives, you know, never seen a naked woman before in our lives, you know, um, but we knew it was there, and um, you know, it, it was temptation. And, um, yeah, it, it seems, you know, quite ironic in, in a way that um, that it was actually on a Sunday school trip that, you know, we had that opportunity. It's crazy, isn't it? So what do you mean by a Sunday school trip? Is that on the way to church or? No, no, it's, um, we had a, a Sunday school trip where we went on a coach trip. Um, so there were adults with us. Um, but when we got to um, this um, town that we were going to, um, which was a, you know, we, we lived in, a, in, in the country where, the, where, you know, tiny villages really, and the trip was um, out to the, one of the nearest towns. So there were lots of shops and um, places where we could go. And I guess in those days, you know, the, the adults felt, you know, that it was safe for us to go on our, on our own, you know, into the shops and around the shops. And so did, did your parents have any idea that you or the others did this? Oh, no, not, not, not at all. They didn't have a clue. They didn't have a clue. And that's usually what we find. We had a woman on the radio, a mom, a couple of weeks ago, and she shared how her 17-year-old son disclosed a nine-year addiction to pornography in her, and we find that most parents are just, they have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It, it, it's something. I mean, it. It. I guess it. It. It's harder for me because I, I was adopted, um, so I didn't feel very close to my parents. You know, my adopted parents, um, and I, I couldn't talk to them about, you know, anything really. Um, now I can't say, you know, what 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 a a normal childhood is is like. You know, for somebody who's not adopted. 
Um, I guess it's still as hard to talk about, you know, this kind of subject. Particularly back in those days, you're talking about, uh, you know, the the 70s, and I was born in 1963, so it would have been, you know, mid mid to late 70s that we're talking about. Mm. Um, I hope that today we're better at talking to our children about these kind of things. Mm. And I've talked to people who have been adopted and with counseling here, and we find that a lot of them are suffering from a heart wound of how can my parents have done that to me? How did how did you heal from that, or what it did it look like for you? Yeah, it was certainly part of my my journey, if you like. And yeah, I did feel totally, um, you know, unloved and unwanted, rejected and abandoned. And uh, it, it's been a long time to to deal with that. And. You know, I've I've now discovered my birth mum. I've known her now for about um, 15 years or so. And, um, you know, the the circumstances of my adoption are are quite harrowing um, in a a way. It it certainly was for her because she didn't want to give me up. But she was an unmarried um, teenage girl living at home with her parents. Um, and you're talking back in the 60s, so it was a big taboo um, subject altogether, you know. Um, there, there weren't, um, ab- abortions weren't um, available in those days. So the usual um, thing would be for um, the young mum to be taken into a nursing home, which is what happened to my mum, and then for um, the baby to be given up for adoption and um she fought against this, and um, her her story really is that she says she was tricked to signing this piece of paper um, to have me adopted and didn't know what she was signing. Mm. Um, and then a few days later, they came and told her, right, we're taking him now. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, you've signed a paper to have him adopted, and, uh, you know, it broke her heart. Now, of course, I've only learned this later on in life. Um, it doesn't take away or, or um, automatically heal all the, the you know, the, the wounds that I feel from that happening. Yeah. But it does help us, you know, gain some kind of, of perspective, if you like. You use the words unwanted and rejected, and from yeah. how uh, have other Christians... Um, how should I say this, kept that wound open with some of the way you've been treated since getting out of prison and telling them you've changed? Yes, that, that's been um, quite a journey. Um, initially, although I didn't know this at the time, before I left prison, I'd, um, I had a good relationship with the, with the prison chaplain. And uh, she said, well, and I, and I explained to her, look, you know, the first thing I want to do when I get out is to find a church. Can you help? And she said, yes, well, I'll, I'll do what I can. And she apparently approached several of the um, churches locally to where I was going to be released. Um, and none of them would, would take me. Um, none of them wanted me to, to join their congregation. I'm glad I didn't know that at the time because I was still quite vulnerable in, in how I felt and so on, you know. Mm. Um, but 
all she said was that, you know, I haven't found any way yet. I didn't realize that she'd asked several and they'd said no. Um, so when I did come out of prison, I, I, I joined, um, I, I eventually found this church to go to. And um, I, I walked in on the first Sunday. Um, my son was with me, which was great because we were, I was reconciled to my children. Um, which is fantastic. So my son came with me. And th this was church as we'd never experienced it before because my background had been in a, in a, um, a very traditional church, um, you know, Methodist church where there's a, a very rigid structure. Um, but this was a total free-for-all almost. You know, you had the congregation speaking, um, praying out and, and people singing and waving their arms in the air and, and clapping their hands, and everybody was happy. Mm. I thought, wow, <laughs> they're, they're, they're singing and laughing and dancing in church. This is unheard of. Mm. And then we, we came out, and um, I said to my son, well, what do you think of that then? And he said, um, yeah, it was okay. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, I think, I think it was great. It was good, wasn't it? And he said, yeah, but you realise they're all mad in there, don't you? <laughs> that was his take on it. And I said, well, if they're mad, then I am too. And mm -hmm. uh, I thought that's the place where I've got to try. And I went back and I spoke to the uh, the pastor and um, we, we, we sat down and, um, you know, I, I felt I had to tell him a little bit about my background and where I'd come from. And um, I, I said to him, you know, it might be a funny question, but do you take sinners? And of course he said, well, we're all sinners. So yes, we do. And I, you know, told him my story and, and, you know, he was great. But there, there were others in the church who were um, not so enthusiastic, shall we say, and, and not so supportive. And um, it's been my, I, I've done a lot of, work since then I've, I've got into charity work um and um we, we've tried to expand that charity work to involve the local churches and many of them have um chosen not to get involved because of my past and i'm thinking you know this this, this isn't right you, you know um you know jesus came and and he took all our sin, all our wrongdoings. He paid for it. So we are made new. <clears throat> you know, we are a new creation in Christ. And that's how I felt. You know, my, my life had changed, you know, com completely. And it really um, bothered me for a while. I, I struggled with this because I didn't expect it, you know. So it, it and it still happens. So I think it, it's very difficult for um, uh, for anybody who's going through this to um, to understand, you know. And I think you you have to just accept that's the way it is, you know. And um, um, you know, it's not the, the people who do reject you still. They don't matter. What matters is what Jesus says. Mm. What does God say? Yep. You know. And I think, you know, anybody who's struggling with any kind of rejection, they need to find their, um, you know, who they are in Christ. 
because Christ came and he came for the lost, the least, the lonely and the lepers. Mm. And I've certainly been made to feel like a leper. Mm. Um, but Christ came and died for me. And and that's what I hang on to, you know. Emery's, we have a minute left. Talk to the people who are struggling right now. Well, if you're struggling right now, then the first step is to, you know, admit to yourself, this is a struggle. You know, I don't want this to go any further. Find someone, you know, like Blazing Grace Ministries, or and there's many others, find someone that you can trust, talk to them, get some help, get somebody on your side, you know, um, and and you can work it through. You, you, you can stop. You can stop this. It's not easy. It's, some, like I said, it's sometimes a daily choice, sometimes several times a day, because you're surrounded by temptation all over the place. Well, thank you for joining us, Emery's. It's been great to have you, and uh, you're welcome. We'll see you next time. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Do you want to be free? Blazing Grace is a nonprofit international ministry for the sexually broken and the spouse. Please visit us at blazinggrace.org for information on Mike Janung's books, groups, counseling, or to have Mike speak at your organization. You can email us at email at blazinggrace.org or call our office in Chandler, Arizona at 719-888-5144. Again, visit us at blazinggrace.org. Email us at email at blazinggrace.org or call the office at 719-888-5144.